Hi, everybody. This is Beth from True Crime B&B, and you are back here with us today for episode 79. And I have a friend of mine from college that I have known for most of my life, and we're going to call him Buckeye Don. Don, say hello. Hello. Tell us what brings you to the true crime world. <laughs> Some listeners may have heard before I was the data-driven person and I think episode 37-ish who tried to help out when I could with some information. I think it was to do with the statute yeah. of limitations on something. I think it was the California case of the two women who were drugged and died. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to the episodes. You knew that I was bringing people on. So you're like, maybe we'll just see if I can do a story. So today you have volunteered to come in and your story is, we're calling it the bad guy story, but why don't you start the story that you prepared for today? Sure. My story is back in the 1940s and 50s. And the way I came up with my story is I actually went looking for something that required some sort of new mechanism or new way of looking at a crime. Like that, an investigative technique? Exactly. Something like that. And I started by going to chat GPT okay. and saying, hey, can you give me something? Originally, they gave me a bunch of serial killers. And I was like, well, I don't really want to do a serial killer. But the great thing about AI is you can keep modifying it. So I said, oh, how about not a serial murder? Right. And they found this story and I thought it was pretty interesting. So I thought I'd share. Okay. I'm interested to hear what you're bringing us today. George Peter Metesky was born on November 2nd, 1903 in New York City. He grew up in a working class family in Waterbury, Connecticut, during a time when the United States was undergoing significant social and economic changes. Absolutely. George's parents, George Metesky Sr. and Eva Snyder Metesky, were of Slovak and German descent. Young George was a bright and curious child, often tinkering with gadgets and displaying an interest in engineering. His father, a tool and die maker, recognized his son's potential and encouraged him to pursue his passion for mechanics. George excelled in school, especially in mathematics and science, and his talent was evident to his teachers and peers. As George entered his teenage years, tragedy struck the Metesky family. His father, George Sr., died in a tragic industrial accident. This event had a profound impact on young George's life. He dropped out of high school at the age of 16 to support his mother and younger siblings. George took various odd jobs to make ends meet, but his dreams of becoming an engineer were pretty much dashed. He harbored deep resentment toward the industrial establishment, blaming them for his father's death. This bitterness festered and grew over the years, laying the foundation for what would later become a series of violent acts. Okay. And, Do you uh, have any yeah. idea what kind of an industrial accident it was that killed his father? I didn't find out anything about his father other than it was an accident. A lot of times it wasn't available, so you may not have been able to. George's anger and frustration continued to escalate as he struggled to find stable employment as he watched his family endure hardship. He became obsessed with a sense of injustice, convinced that he'd been wronged by society at large. His thoughts took a darker turn and he began plotting his revenge. In 1931, George was working as a pressurizer. One source said pressurizer, another one said wiper. A wiper would be someone who's cleaning generators. And okay. pressurizer would have something to do with boilers. And it was at Consolidated Edison, Con Ed, in New York City. One day in 1931, he was severely injured in a boiler pipe explosion at the power plant, causing him to be covered in oil. That oil ignited, 
causing burns to his face and hands. The accident left him permanently disfigured and also with debilitating injuries to his lungs. I guess he inhaled some scalding boiler fumes. Yikes. Yikes. And he burned his leg. He was unable to continue working because of this, and he went on disability for 26 weeks. He filed a workers' compensation claim stating that the accident led to pneumonia that progressed to tuberculosis, but his bitterness deepened when the company denied his request, claiming that his injuries were not work-related. Not sure wow. how that But, follows. you know, back before, what, the 50s, there weren't any worker protections. They didn't have the laws that we have now that required an employer to take precautions to ensure the safety of their workers. And now we have OSHA and OSHA would have all kinds of rules and regulations. And there are all kinds of codes and standards that govern the operation and maintenance of boilers. I mean, that specifically. So that poor guy, I mean, I see why he would be angry. Of course, he was basically thrown into the Wolfton and there was no safety net at all for him. I just... Oh, very true. Very true. His rage reached a tipping point at that juncture, and he decided to take matters into his own hands. In 1940, he planted his first bomb in a public place. The device exploded in New York City's subway system, injuring several people. Metesky had set the stage for his reign of terror that would grip the city for years to come. Basically, for the next 16 years, Metesky would plant more than 30 bombs in various locations throughout New York City, targeting public spaces such as theaters, libraries, and transportation hubs. He sent taunting letters to the newspaper and the police, signed as FP. These letters contained cryptic messages and threats, creating fear among the city's residents. Later, once he was incarcerated, they asked him, and he said it stood for fair play. So it's basically his moral outrage, taking it out on innocent people. Good job. Yeah, which seems ridiculous. But, you know, when you have that kind of angst over what you believe is a complete slight to your whole life, yeah. I guess you can well, see he how was, you take it that way. He was right to be angry, but oh, yeah. there are better ways to focus your energies than going out and blowing up unsuspecting people who had nothing to do with what happened to you. That's exactly right. So the hunt for the Mad Bomber became a top priority for the New York City Police Department, as you can imagine. They ran into a dead end for a while. They put information out to the public and hoping that they'd get some good tips. And unfortunately, those just turned into a nightmare because people were calling in everything. You know, oh, I think my neighbor did it. I think this happened. And it was a lot of conjecture and none of them really panned out. Yeah. But then at one point, the policeman working the case sought the help of Dr. Frederick Eberhardt. He was a psychiatrist and they asked him, what he could think of about this person and what might prove to be a way to find him. Okay. And so this was one of the first times they'd ever used any kind of psychologist or anyone to actually pull things together. Oh, uh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. They had fingerprint experts, handwriting experts, and the bomb investigation. That stuff just went nowhere. So when they started talking to this guy, he reached out to a fellow by the name of James A. Brussel. He was a criminologist, a psychiatrist, and an associate commissioner of the New York State Commission on Mental Hygiene. They put him in contact with the head inspector over the whole thing, who was Inspector Finney, and he worked with him to come up with this profile. The profile came up with a number of theories beyond the fact that it was an obvious grudge against Consolidated Edison. They could tell from the notes that they had. They said, well, we think everyone has already thought that it was a Consolidated Edison ex-employee or current employee who had some sort of grudge. 
So they'd started looking through employee records, trying to find him, but it wasn't proving very successful. So then he came up with this profile. He said, it's going to be a male because historically most bombers are male. Yeah. He said, well, proportion of an average build based on hospitalized mental patients is where he came up with that. He said, 40 to 50 years old as paranoia develops slowly. Okay. He's going to be precise, neat, and tidy based on the letters and the workmanship on his bombs. He would be an exemplary employee on time and well-behaved. He said he would be Slavic because bombs were favored in Middle Europe. Wow. They also figured out he would probably be a Catholic because most Slavs are Catholic. He would be courteous, but not friendly. They said he has a good education, but probably not college. Foreign-born or living in a community of the foreign-born, the formal tone and old-fashioned phrasing in the letters sounded to Brussels as if they were written or thought in a foreign language and then translated in the person's head to English. Based on the rounded letter W's in the handwriting, believed to represent breasts of all things, and a slashing and stuffing of theater seats. Did he stick bombs inside the theater seats? Yes. And, oh, I didn't uh, catch that. Okay. Oh, I hadn't said that yet, I guess. Sorry. Oh, it makes more sense, though. Russell thought something about sex was troubling the bomber, possibly an Oedipus complex, loving his mother and hating his father and other authority figures. And then he said he was a loner with no friends, little interest in women, possibly a virgin, unmarried, perhaps living with an older female relative, probably lives in Connecticut as Connecticut has a high concentration of Slavs, and many of the bomber's letters were posted in Winchester County, midway between Connecticut and New York. Wow. So probably on his transit, he would post mail these letters. So this was really specific. I mean, especially yeah. considering they weren't really doing this kind of thing back then. It turns out it was pretty accurate. Russell also additionally predicted to his visitors that when the bomber was caught, he would be wearing a double-breasted suit buttoned. Holy I'm shit. like, how's he know that? Well, maybe it has to do with the formality of the language and all that, that this is someone who, if he's leaving the house, he's going to get spiffed up and put his suit on, you know? Right. Wow, that's and, amazing. Uh, then he said that although the police had pretty much kept this investigation fairly low key after the whole fiasco with letting the public in on it, he said he thought now that they had a profile, they should put it out there, you know, so that they yeah. could actually maybe get better information. Predicting that the wrong assumption made in it would prod the bomber to respond. Under the headline, 16-year search for a madman, the New York Times version of the profile summarized the major predictions. Single man between 40 and 50 years old, introvert, unsocial but not antisocial, skilled mechanic, cunning, neat with tools, egotistical and of mechanical skill, contemptuous of other people, resentful of criticism of his work, but probably concealed resentment. He's moral. He's honest. Not interested in women, high school graduate, expert in civil or military ordinance, religious, might flare up violently at work when criticized, possible motive, discharge or reprimand, feels superior to critics, resentment keeps growing, present or former consolidated Edison worker, probably case of progressive paranoia. So the newspapers published this profile on December 25th, 1956 along with the story of a so-called Christmas Eve bomb discovered in the public library. Oh, wow. By the end of the month, bomb hoaxes and false confessions had risen to epidemic proportions. At the peak of the hysteria, December 28th, police received over 50 false bomb threats, over 20 the next day. Wow. 
People are sickos. Exactly. Exactly. People are really sick. You know, sometimes you see stories and you see things in the news and you think, wow, humans can be so amazing sometimes. And then something like this happens and people are calling in false bomb threats just to cause more panic. I just don't. I'll never understand. Right. I mean, you know, there's a certain mindset. We can see it, but we can't really empathize or sympathize with it because that's just not the way we think. Yeah. Even if you can understand where where it started and how it got there, you'll never understand justifying it. Correct. One thing I found out was that Con Edison clerk named Alice Kelly had for days been scouting the company's workers' compensation files for employees with serious health problems. On Friday, January 18, 1957, while searching the final batch of troublesome worker compensation case files, those where threats were made or implied, she found a file marked in red with the words injustice and permanent disability, words that have been printed in the Journal American. Mm -hmm. The file indicated that one George Metesky, an employee from 1929 to 1931, had been injured on September 5, 1931. Several letters from Metesky were in the file using wording similar to the letters that were published, including the phrase, dastardly deeds. The police were notified shortly before five o'clock that evening. They initially treated the notification as just one of a number of leads and they were working on, but asked the Waterbury police to do a discreet check on George Metesky at his house on 174th Street. Okay. Again, the name of the woman who was doing the, the checking on the mail. Alice Kelly, yeah. Alice, Alice Kelly. So Kelly. she was quite the hero, and I'm sure she Shout was not really. Yeah, I mean, they probably sort of swept her under the rug. Right. And, you know, first they just figured it was another crackpot thing because they'd had so many. Sure. True. Right. But I think they should have given it pretty good credence because she worked for the company and she was going through the employment records. Yeah. Which narrows it a little bit over just the unwashed masses. Right. One other breakthrough came when Metesky had left the crucial clue behind at one of his bombing sites. Investigators managed to trace the unexploded bomb back to him through a serial number on a clock he had used in the device. So then when this group went out to get him from the Waterbury police on January 21st, 1957, he was arrested at his Waterbury home. I'm kind of surprised they could trace a serial number from a clock in 1954 back to the actual person who had the clock. Yeah. Doesn't that seem a little bit... Very interesting stuff, but I have a feeling they started noticing that the same kind of clock was used in different bombs just from the fragments that were left and that sort of thing. So then maybe they started querying all the places that actually manufactured this clock and said... Hey, if you come across any of these, tell us what to look for. That's all I could figure. Right. Anyway, that's pretty good police work, I'd say, on their part back in the 50s. Yes. Over this period of time, there were a dozen injuries, but no deaths. He had placed these 30 bombs at Penn Station, the Port Authority, Bus Terminal, Brooklyn Paramount Theater, Radio City Music Hall, and various phone booths. Nearly half of them exploded, but half clearly did not. Yeah, but if you're the person who's there on the half that did explode, then you don't care about the other half that didn't. Yeah, they realized when they went to his house that they had found someone who was really close to the person, but he immediately confessed. When they arrested him, they asked him for a handwriting sample and to write the letter G, which was pretty easy to see in his things. And he made the G, looked up and said, I know why you fellows are here. You think I'm the mad bomber. And that's when he started telling the whole story. When they got him. And that's when he told them that FP stood for fair play. They said he fit a ton of this profile. I mean, it was very, very exact. But they said he wasn't wearing a double-breasted suit when the police arrived. 
Aww, but man. when he was arrested, he asked to change and then wore a suit matching the profile into the <laughs> police station. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So he immediately confessed because he had been doing all this, just waiting for his opportunity to tell his story, you know? Right. That's what you think, because he wanted to get that, you know, injustice out there into the public. Yeah. I think that's why he- People would certainly understand why I did this. Right. And one more note about Alice Kelly. Our hero. A report developed in reward investigation conceded that Alice Kelly had found the file and explained the misplaced credit as due to a misunderstanding of the file being picked up by the detective the following Monday morning. Basically, they weren't going to say that she had done anything- stellar because they thought that she had given them a whole bunch of files and turns out no she gave them that one file oh so she narrowed it down for them yes she had found that one and she said wow this one's really good it's really close Mm -hmm. although the nypd did officially credit kelly with turning up the clue that led to metesky's arrest she declined to claim the twenty six thousand dollars in rewards saying she had merely been doing her job Okay, well, for uh, her. The Consolidated Edison Board of Directors also declined to file for the reward, prompting a group of shareholders to file as representatives of Kelly and the company, trying to get their money out of it. So because she was working for the company, the shareholders thought they should get the money from the reward that she turned down. Right. She was doing Greedy her job assholes. and we love the job that she does and we, we gave her that job, so we probably deserve one. Wow. Okay. Pretty crazy. So now he's been arrested and he's got his nice suit on and they have evidence against him. So what was happening? Well, the next thing was the interrogation. He'd already confessed, but they still wanted more details, right? Mm -hmm. So he told the arresting officers that he'd been gassed in the Con Edison accident and that caused tuberculosis as a result. And he started planting bombs because, quote, he got a bum deal, end quote. Going over the police list of 32 bomb locations, but never using the word bomb, he remembered the exact date where each unit had been placed. He called them units. Wow. He then added to the police list the size, the date, and the location of 15 early bombs the police had not known about. All oh left God. at Con Edison locations and apparently never reported. Wow. In their search, police found parts for a bomb that would have been larger than any of the others. Metesky explained that it was intended for the New York Coliseum. Oh, my God. So this guy, I mean, he started with a legitimate gripe. He started with a legitimate cause. And then he started putting these bombs out there. Fortunately, most of them didn't go off, it sounds like. But how many people did he end up hurting? You know, and how badly were these people hurt in his quest just to get revenge on some faceless company that had nothing to do with most of those people? Yeah, I never got an exact total of the number injured. There were so many bombs and only half of them went off. When they did, they would be not right up against someone because no one died. So they didn't really list that. Yeah, some of these older stories, it's hard to get information about them. Yeah, so after grand jury heard testimony from 35 witnesses, including police experts and those injured. He was indicted on 47 charges of attempted murder, damaging a building by explosion, maliciously endangering life, and violation of New York State's Sullivan Law by carrying concealed weapons, the bomb. Seven counts of attempted murder were charged based on the seven persons injured. Okay. Ah, we got seven. 
in the preceding five years, just in five years, the statute of limitations in the case. So they couldn't go back for the five years. So the number was probably more than that. But going back five years, there were seven. Okay, I see. I don't understand how something like this, how does a violent crime have a statute of limitations? This is such bullshit. Great question. I don't understand. It's just ridiculous. If you're good at hiding your crime, you just get away with it. It's just okay. Oh, pass, pass. You were so sneaky. Right. And then at the end, he was brought into the courtroom to hear the charges from Manhattan's Bellevue Hospital, where he had been undergoing psychiatric examination. They want to make sure he could stand trial or whatever. So he was found fit to stand trial. Well, you're going to find out that next. Okay. After hearing from the psychiatric experts, Judge Samuel Leibowitz declared the tubercular metesky a paranoid schizophrenic, hopeless and incurable, both mentally and physically and found him legally insane and incompetent to stand trial. Wow. On April 18th, 1957, Judge Leibowitz committed Metesky to Mateawan Hospital mm-hmm. for the Criminally Insane in Beacon, New York. Because he had tuberculosis, they expected him to live only a few weeks due to that condition, and so he had to be carried to the hospital. After a year and a half of treatment, his health had improved, and a newspaper article written 14 years later described the 68-year-old Metesky as vigorous and healthy looking. Holy crap. So I guess he fooled them. Right. While he was at Mateawan, the Journal American hired a leading workers' compensation attorney named Bartholomew James O'Rourke to appeal his disallowed claim in the 1931 injury on the grounds that Metesky was mentally incompetent at the time and did not know his rights. The appeal was denied. Metesky was unresponsive to psychiatric therapy, but was a model inmate and caused no trouble. He was visited regularly by his sisters. And that's one thing I left out. When they said that he would be living with an older relative, after he became unemployed due to the accident, he was living with his sisters. Okay. So that one even was on point. Okay. But you know, in the long run, this guy's a model prisoner because all he really wanted was for somebody to take care of him when he was injured after his accident. And now he's in this place and he's being taken care of. So he probably in the end was content with that. Granted, he did a lot of terrible things to get there, but he ended up getting pretty much what he was looking for in the first place. Right, right. And you have no reason to do that anymore. You've done all that you could. Yeah. When you were out. Yeah. He confessed to his sisters when they came to visit him. And he was also occasionally visited by the profiler, Brussel. Mm-hmm. To whom he would point out that he had deliberately built his bombs not to kill anyone. Yeah, Do we believe that's true? that's what he told him. Now, I don't know whether it's true or not, because nobody really cleared that in any way. Because it but, seems like if you're putting it in a theater seat, it doesn't have to be a very big bomb to kill somebody. So I think that maybe that's a lie on his part. Yeah, you kind of wonder. I don't know. He didn't seem like much of a liar, though. In in most of the things he said, he was very truthful, but hard to say. Then in 1973, the United States Supreme Court ruled that a mentally ill defendant cannot be committed to a hospital operated in the New York State Department of Correction Services unless a jury finds him dangerous. Since Metesky had been committed to Mateawan without a jury trial, he was transferred to the Creedmoor Psychiatric Center, a state hospital outside the correctional system. Doctors determined that he was harmless, and because he had already served two-thirds of the 25-year maximum sentence he would have received, Metesky was released on December 13, 1973. Wow, that's pretty good Um, considering they only thought he was going to live a few more weeks. 17 17 years, yes. Mm -hmm. The single condition that he had to make regular visits to the Connecticut Department of Mental Hygiene near his home. 
interviewed by a reporter during his release, he said that he had forsworn violence, but reaffirmed his anger and resentment towards Consolidated Edison. <laughs> he also stated that before he began planning his bombs, quote, I wrote 900 letters to the mayor, the police commissioner, to the newspapers, and I never got a penny stock postcard back. Then I went to the newspapers to try to buy advertising space, but all of them turned me down. I was compelled to bring my story to the public. Wow. And then, well, maybe they were just sick of him by then. Well, 900 letters. I think people would be really sick of him, I, I would think. That's <laughs> a lot of letters. That is a um, lot of letters. But he didn't have anything else to do. Right, since he couldn't work. Metesky hmm. returned to his home in Waterbury after his release, where he died 20 years later in 1994 at the age of 90. Holy crap. <laughs> what a wild ride that was. Indeed. And I just keep going back to the fact that at the beginning, you can totally be on board with this guy's aggravation and frustration and disgust the way he was treated. But then he hurt all those people, at least significantly more than seven, probably. And then half of those people never got any justice because their crimes had been beyond the statute of limitations, which is a bunch right. of crap. And then the guy lives another 37 years. So, well, that <laughs> yeah, was so very that, interesting. Do you have any conclusions for us about it? Or That was pretty much the end of the story. The only thing I thought was he was harmed by an injustice that was done to him. And then he created these bombs that hurt other individuals. And who's to say they don't feel the same way and cause yeah. that to just snowball. Yeah. So I don't see how hurting other people was really going to fix his problem and could even cause other people to have the same problem, which if you thought about that, why would you do it? I mean, you wouldn't want to cause somebody else to have the same issues that you have and gripes that you have. Well, yeah, but you're coming from the point of view of a sane mind. Well, if you are you not- give me a lot of credit. <laughs> if you are not of sane mind and you have not been raised with the kind of justice-oriented mechanisms that most of us are- and you're hurt or you're angry or you, you know, it's like a cornered animal. They lash out. They'll bite you. Even if it's the nicest dog you ever met, if they're scared and you've got them cornered, they will bite you. So this dog just bit and he kept biting and biting. Wow. I'm just glad they caught him and that he never did this again after he was caught because he got to say his piece. He got to tell them what he was mad about. And, you know, and they even and then, tried to help him. They, they reopened his case, even though it didn't succeed. They re did reopen his compensation claim. Yeah. And he was denied again, which was probably still not just, but one more stab in the back. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Still not just, but it, it is what it is. And wow. So he died in 1994. 19... Wow. I can't believe he lived that long. I know. With tuberculosis. Yeah. Yeah. One of those people who just basically refused to give up. He was built to last after all he'd been through. That's for sure. Well, thank you, Don. That was well done. Well told. So someday when you come back, you won't be a virgin anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I, I enjoyed telling this story. I'm glad you told the story because I knew that the events had happened, but I didn't know anything about the details of them. So filled me in. Now I'm more educated. So I'm happy to do it. My story is very different from yours. It involves a family in the Chicago area. And I'm going to just start by describing who these people are and what happened to them and then what the aftermath of what happened to them was. I'm going to tell you about Helen Joy Steinel. She was born in Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin in 1934 in a well-off family during the Great Depression and grew up in the Milwaukee area. 
Joy's mother was strict and religious. Joy was not. She was kicked out of Catholic school because she rebelled and she had her own ideas about things. Joy's mother was the niece of famed defense attorney Clarence Darrow. He of the so-called Scopes Monkey trial, and Joy was intellectually brilliant and eloquent like her great uncle. Joy graduated from Marquette University with a degree in journalism. She moved to Chicago and spent her time after graduation doing things of consequence, things that would matter, things that would help someone. She became involved in the earliest organizations dedicated to environmental causes. She befriended Buckminster Fuller, the architect who popularized the concept of the geodesic dome as a building type. She traveled to Cuba to interview Fidel Castro before he led the years-long Cuban revolution in the 1950s to overthrow the Batista government. She interviewed Hank Aaron when he was still new to professional baseball and trying to succeed despite the racism that he was met with. She honed her craft. She interviewed important people. She worked hard and used her energy and voice to try to make a better world. Joy married a photographer named Hal Bame, and together they quickly had three children, Marcy, Tracy, and Clark. By 1967, that marriage was crumbling and they divorced. Joy dropped Hal Bame's last name at that time and changed it to Darrow, which was not her original maiden name, but this was in honor of the maternal side of the family and her great uncle, whom many have suggested may have been her North Star for speaking out for the causes that she invested herself in. Soon after the breakup of her marriage, Joy attended a party in Chicago and met a man 13 years her junior. Stephen Pratt was a part-time teacher at a public school and he was 21 years old when she was 34 years old. Stephen had been born in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and had graduated from Wabash College. He immediately felt very smitten with Joy and set out to put himself in places where they would run into one another. Over time, the two became involved, they fell in love, and they ended up getting married. Stephen became the stepfather to Joy's three children, and the family grew together and became tight and strong. The children alternated between thinking of Stephen as their stepfather and other times he was just dad. Now with a solid family unit, Joy took up the cause of advocating for civil rights, covering the rise of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and helping to open up mortgage lending to people of color. She was tireless in her social commentary and efforts to create equality for all people. She was also artistically inclined and was a talented painter and photojournalist. As if she didn't have enough things to do, she also used her writing ability to do public relations work in addition to all of her other pursuits. In the 1960s, before getting together with Stephen, Joy had been working for the Chicago Tribune, where she was limited in what she was allowed to cover. Because of her gender, it was a dead-end street for a firecracker like Joy, so she was not destined to be there for too long. By 1968, Stephen had also started working for the Chicago Tribune, and he was writing the types of stories that Joy had been denied. Crime, politics, world events, racial injustices. He even received assignments to Europe and was promoted to assistant city editor. But Joy was not resentful. She had moved on and continued her social justice efforts elsewhere, starting organizations to help those causes along. She was tireless. Sounds like it. I mean, before she went to the Tribune, it sounds like she interviewed a lot of very important people, a lot of famous people. You know, she had her justice bent, you know, yeah. she wanted to make sure that she fought for the little guy and moved things in a good progressive direction. No, you're exactly so it's, right. It's, it's just sad that she was left behind because of her gender in that era. I can understand, I guess. Yeah, there were a lot of really talented women who were not able to go as far as they could have gone based on their talent because they had boobs. 
you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, meanwhile, was making a name for himself as a prolific and strong journalist. But he was also known for his warm and welcoming personality. And he was especially known for throwing crazy Halloween and New Year's Eve parties. He was an amateur chef and loved to cook, and his colleagues were all welcome. The family wasn't rich, but they were doing well. They bought an old townhouse and combined three flats into a single house using salvaged building materials, keeping in line with Joy's concerns about the environment. They threw huge parties with great diversity in the people who attended. No one was excluded from sharing what they had, and anyone who needed a place to stay was invited in and could hang around until they were able to get back on their feet. Stephen and Joy raised Marcy, Tracy, and Clark to be comfortable around any group of people. Race, religion, customs, traditions, lifestyle, none of those things should prevent people from being able to get along. The children were exposed to all walks of life, and as they grew up, they learned not to be afraid of people who looked or lived differently than they did. In 1978, Joy became managing editor of the Chicago Defender, a Black-owned Chicago publication. She was putting her journalism skills and her advocacy together. That same year, she received an award from the University of Missouri School of Journalism for her work in race relations. Things were going great for the family. Until before dawn on the Tuesday after Memorial Day weekend in 1978. The family suddenly had to deal with something they never could have expected and never would have expected, bearing in mind their love and respect towards all people. But at 5 o'clock a.m. on Tuesday, May 30th, 1978, daughter Tracy, then 15, was alone in her bedroom when a man, who had broken into the huge combined townhouse, found her room on the second floor and began to attack her. Tracy was a tiny girl, only 4 foot 10 and just over 100 pounds, and the man was much larger and stronger. I mean, anyone is much larger and stronger than a four foot ten girl. He attempted to rape her, but Tracy fought like a tiger. She threw a bottle, which was the only thing that she could reach from the side table. The man stabbed her in the left thigh with a knife. Tracy began screaming and grabbed for the knife to prevent him from stabbing her again. Her hand was badly cut in reaching for the knife. As Tracy continued to struggle against the intruder, her 14-year-old brother Clark was awakened down the hall by her screams. He raced down the hall to find out what was happening to Tracy, and upon seeing the man attacking her, he then ran down from the second floor to their parents' room on the lower level. He told them that there was a man in Tracy's room hurting her. As Joy and Stephen sprang out of the bed and ran up the stairs to help her, Clark called the police. Just as Joy and Stephen ran into Tracy's bedroom, the attacker spun around to face them and immediately started to stab Stephen. Stephen was stabbed over and over, and Joy and Tracy attempted to disarm the man, but they were unable to do it. Tracy cut her hands again on the blade. Stephen had been stabbed so many times that he started to lose consciousness, and then he fell down the stairs. At this point, the attacker jumped over a railing from the second floor. Once downstairs, he smashed and went out through a window. A neighbor, who happened to be outside with his carpool picking him up, saw the man crash out through the window and chased him away from the house. The assailant removed and dropped his bloody outer clothing in the alley behind the house. He was then seen running down the alley by two police officers who were in the neighborhood. They caught up with him and arrested him on the porch of a Dayton Street house about a block away, where he had on only undershorts, socks, and shoes. At least they caught him. I was terrified he was just going to get away. Well, there was a reason that they were in the neighborhood and he got caught. 
The man was arrested and taken to the Chicago Avenue police station. He had also dropped his wallet and ID in Tracy's room during his attack on her. He was 24-year-old. I know I see you laughing. That's pretty stupid. If you're going to go in and attack somebody, at least make sure you leave with everything you came with, right? Or leave your wallet at home. Do you really need that? I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I might want to you know, pay for some food on the way home or something. I don't Maybe know. robbery's not your bag, dude, or burglary. He was 24-year-old Ralph Vaughn. The two police officers who arrested Vaughn had been in the neighborhood to investigate a report of a burglary that had been called in 45 minutes prior to the attack on the family. So Vaughn had broken into a different house on the street. The owners had called for police. And when he saw the police pulling into the area in reaction to the call, he had then broken into the Pratt house in order to hide from the police. Ah. Finding teenage Tracy there, he had attempted to sexually assault her, just a crime of opportunity, I guess, followed by the brutal knife attacks on the family when her parents arrived to help her. Vaughn had also received a head wound at some point during the attack or his attempted escape. We don't know when he hurt his head, and I really don't care. (laughs) Me either. (laughs) Tracy was treated for the three knife wounds that she had received. Joy was also treated for three knife wounds, in addition to some broken ribs. They were both treated and released, and then they went to the police station to identify the suspect as being the guy who had attacked them. Stephen, on the other hand, was admitted to Grant Hospital in serious but stable condition and underwent three hours of surgery for multiple deep stab wounds. In fact, he had a total of 25 stab wounds in his chest, back, and left arm, along with a collapsed left lung. Wow. One of the knife wounds had cut an artery in the back of his neck. He was placed in intensive care to monitor internal bleeding. Then he was kept under sedation for over a day to try to reduce the risk of a stroke due to the disruption of blood flow to his brain. Vaughn's bond was set at $150,000, but since he couldn't pay it, he was held and the case was continued until June the 7th. The charges were attempted murder, attempted rape, armed violence, and aggravated battery. Two weeks. Now this is fast action. Two weeks after this traumatic assault on the family, an Illinois bill was advanced with the intent to make the crime of home invasion a Class X felony, raising the minimum sentence for conviction to six years. This minimum sentence would apply even if there were no injuries resulting from the home invasion. A Class X felony at that time, and still today, could result in up to 30 years, which could be doubled for repeat offenders or especially heinous crimes. So if you invaded the home, whether you Did anything once you got in there or not, you still were going to face a minimum of six years. And then for injuries or theft or anything on top of it, it could be up to 30. Sounds like compounding, you know, the more you do, the worse you get it. And that seems fair. It does to me too. At his trial in December, 1978, Ralph Vaughn made a statement to the court. He claimed he did not intend to hurt anyone in the family. He claimed he had just been evicted from his apartment and did not have a job. I guess that means that he was not in his right mind. He said that he had a son and a fiance, and I guess that's an excuse for trying to steal things so that he could (laughs) support them. He also said he wished that he could have talked to Stephen Pratt and told him he was sorry. Well, Stephen Pratt was actually in the courtroom during this statement. He was asked by the judge to recount what had happened to him. He told the story of what had taken place that night, that he had spent over a month in the hospital. He explained that he had not yet regained the full use of his left arm. After Stephen's statement in court, Vaughn consulted with his attorney and then pled guilty. 
He was sentenced to 22 years on the armed violence charge, six for burglary at the Pratt House, three years for the earlier burglary that same morning, and six years for robbing a cab driver a year earlier. I couldn't find the reason that he wasn't convicted for the attempted rape. They may not have pursued those charges. The sentences were to run concurrently, but under the revised home invasion sentencing guidelines, he was required to serve a minimum of 11 years before he could be considered for parole. The family, on their part, did their best to heal and repair their psyches and their bodies. They had physical injuries, too. They moved out of that house and into a new home in the year following the attack, but it was a struggle to deal with the aftermath and the nightmares. Tracy, the daughter, had nightmares for decades after it happened. Joy dealt with things in her own way, but she refused to dwell on it. She made a point to remind Tracy that the race of their attacker, who was a black man, was not a reason to let racism creep into her mind. Joy reminded her there are people of every race who are good and people of every race who are bad. In what Tracy later thought was Joy's way of practicing what she preached after the attack, Joy shared with her daughter that it had not been the first violence that she had experienced. When Joy had first moved to Chicago, she had been attacked and sexually assaulted by a group of men of another race. She had been devastated after that experience and had never mentioned it to her daughter until after their family had experienced their shared trauma. And then Joy never mentioned it again. For her lifetime of advocacy towards people of every walk of life and equality for all illustrated her commitment to not paint an entire group with the same brush because of a bad experience with one evil person or a small group of evil people. As the family moved forward in their lives, Joy continued as editor for the Chicago Defender, as well as teaching, painting, writing, supporting fair and safe community housing, working as a photojournalist, volunteering as a human rights monitor domestically and internationally, and working in public relations. She also opened a gallery that featured the work of Black photographers and other people of color. So this woman, I don't know how she was doing all the things she was doing. She did more than five people in her. Yeah, sure did. Stephen returned to work at the Chicago Tribune, where he changed his focus. Perhaps crime was not something he wanted to spend his time examining after what he'd been through. He remained an assistant editor, having been an award-winning writer for the Tribune for over a decade at that point. But he decided to pursue writing pieces about health, medicine, and food. In 1985, he had a heart attack at the age of 40, and this only strengthened his interest in health and healthy cooking. He continued to work in this capacity until, tragically, Joy died in 1996 at the age of 62. They had been married all this time, and their love had just matured and grown over the years. Stephen had been through many physical issues over the years by this time. And when Joy died, he decided to retire in 1997 to Key West, Florida. Stephen's flair for attracting hordes of friends seemed to follow him to Florida, and he was known to have a very full social life. It was not uncommon for him to have dozens of friends over. In 1999, Stephen became involved with a new partner and was in that relationship with her until January 21, 2005, when Stephen died of an apparent heart attack at his home at the age of only 60. After the attack on her and her family in 1978, Tracy Bame had gone back to school and then to graduate from Lane Technical High School. After graduating in 1984 from Drake University, Tracy had struck out making a name for herself as a prolific LGBTQ writer, journalist, and later as a filmmaker. Hmm. In her blog, she stated that the attack by a man didn't make her become gay because she was already gay. 
The attack by a black person didn't bring out racism in her because she had not blamed the attack on his race. The attack didn't turn her into a writer because she was already becoming one. But although she was still fundamentally the same person she had been before, she did sleep with a weapon close to her for many, many years after that attack. She said she could have managed to have killed him in self-defense and in defense of the rest of her family the night that he hurt her and her parents, but she didn't feel a need for vengeance afterward. She only wished that her childhood hadn't been so violently stolen from her. Tracy's career path was impressive, just like Joy's and Stevens. She was a founder of the Windy City Times in 1985, only a year after her graduation from college, which, although there was some shuffling of ownership, has been one of the primary LGBTQ newspapers in the Midwest and beyond. She still owns the paper and is the publisher. In 2018, Tracy also became publisher of the Chicago Reader, from which she retired in 2022. Over the years, she's won many, many awards for her writing, her publications, her leadership, and her advocacy. But these three amazing individuals, all part of this one family, who were put through a devastating, horrible event, have left such a remarkable legacy. And to finish out the celebration of these three survivors, is one last thing I want to share, and it might make me cry because I choke Aww. up every time I start thinking about it. Five years ago, in 2018, a new honorary society was formed called the Chicago Women's Journalism Hall of Fame. Mm. The first five inductees were Ida B. Wells, a woman born enslaved who became an investigative journalist, educator, and civil rights activist. Laura Washington, a Chicago Sun-Times columnist and television commentator and political analyst. Ellen Warren, a Chicago Tribune features columnist and national and international correspondent. Okay, I need a big breath here. And Joy Darrow and Tracy Bain. Mother and daughter were two of the very first five inductees into this group of outstanding women journalists. Of all the women journalists, mother and daughter were two of the first five. Tracy was able to enjoy that moment, and I'm sure it had to be extra emotional to receive such an honor next to her amazing mother. But I just wish that Joy and Stephen could have still been around to bask in that happiness too. So this was a hell of a family, very impressive, good people. And they all three succeeded in their quest to make a difference in the world, despite that awful thing they went through in 1978. You could see how people would not do the amazing things they did and how they could change their mind or or wind up despising a race or despising whatever, but they chose to look at individuals. And I think that's the right way to go. Yeah. You know, each individual is different. It has nothing to do with your race or your, some religion, people are violent, your upbringing. Some people are not yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, if everybody hated people with curly hair because they had curly hair, I would be screwed. I'd be okay. <laughs> but I just thought they were such an amazing family. And I started reading this when I found Tracy Bames' blog, oh. which she just barely touched on it. She was actually talking about a Jodie Foster movie, The Brave One, and how that had brought back a lot of memories for her. And it brought back a lot of emotions for her. So then I wanted to find out what had actually happened. So I started researching the crime that had taken place. And then I found out about her mom and her dad. He's actually her stepdad, but she calls him dad a lot of the time. So they were just an amazing 
family and they were the most welcoming and open and inclusive people that I ever heard of. And I just loved them. So I wanted to share them with you. I appreciate that. They were like the prototypical family that just moves on after a horrible incident in their lives. And, and, you know, that's what everybody wants for people who have these kind of tragedies, but not very many people can do it. And, you know, not only did they continue on, but they were amazing. Yeah. You know, they were extra special. It's just awesome. They were extra special. And I'm glad that Stephen went on and found some new happiness, a different kind of happiness after he lost Joy. But he fell in love with her the first time he saw her at that party. And he loved her until the day she was gone. And I just love that they found that together because not everybody ever does. And that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, 100% true on that. They definitely had a a great love story and their children seem to have done amazing things because of it. Did they say anything about the other two kids? I know that Marcy married and had a family. I don't know anything about Clark. I didn't see any news about him. I do know that he called the police, though, and got help for his sister, so she may not have survived it had Clark not been alert and run down to get his parents to come up and help. And it's good to get attention to the police when the police were already in the neighborhood for the guy's other burglary. Yes, 100%. It makes it a lot easier to catch the guy if, if they're nearby. Yeah. And what an idiot to go in and think that you're going to pull off a home invasion and a rape, a couple of murders. When the police are already there looking for you for the other burglary you just committed. Well, in my mind, I I look at that guy and I say, okay, I come into the house. Well, he's probably not coming into the house on the third floor. So he's coming down the first floor. He's trying to escape the police he already saw. So why are you going, you know what? I'm here. I might as well cause some more violence or some more trouble. Yeah. Uh, let's not just hide and wait for the police to leave. Let's let's find this girl and, and attempt to rape her. What in the world are these people thinking? It's crazy. Yeah. Well, there are certain features of criminals who do this kind of stuff, and high IQ is not always one of them. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> well, and you know, I just look at the family. I mean, I, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, and you know, we need to focus on the survivors and the, the good news, which is this family continued to be outstanding in their pursuits after such a horrible event. So, yeah. Yeah, I just love that family. And I was just really happy to find out about that award because that just really touched me. Because if you remember, my first major was journalism. So I always have kind of a softness in my heart for journalists. Joy was lightning. She was just lightning. And Stephen was steady and strong. They were complimentary to each other, I think, but they were they were wonderful together. Well, I mean, it would have been really easy for her to be upset with him because he was getting all the recognition, all the great stories that she wanted to cover, but they didn't let her. But she didn't let that get to her either. She had plenty of other outlets. So that's amazing in its own right, too. Well, she knew it wasn't his fault. You know, if he got higher in in the editing group, he probably could have started to make some changes. But he never had a chance to do that because he had this crime happen to him. And then he sort of shifted his focus in his life. He's like, you know what? I think I'm just going to talk about how to cook healthy. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that's the end of the episode, Don. I think you did a great job today. I'm really proud of you for coming on here completely blind, no idea what to expect. We did have a little trouble getting our devices hooked up, but hell, I have that issue on every recording, no matter how many of them I do. So, well, you know, I I have my 
I just bought this microphone. I, I never used my webcam that we're using to see each other with and got them working pretty quickly. So I'm pretty happy with that, how that turned out. I'm glad you enjoyed my story. As always, I liked yours. You know, I always like the ones where people are amazing and they do amazing things. So that's yeah. Cool. I mean, people that go through this stuff, I just don't feel like they should just be a footnote in history. I think someone should be remembering them. If I can find some more stories like this, I like to be able to bring these people back to life for just a little while and let people remember about them because that means a lot to me. And I don't I mean, you that know. award definitely will continue forever. You know, they'll always be remembered as the as mother daughter team that made the first five. I mean, that's yeah. pretty amazing. First pretty, five inductees. Fantastic. I'm trying to use a word other than amazing because I think I've used <laughs> about 500 times in this episode. I do the same thing. Keep using the same one over and over and over. It's like, Jesus Christ, do you have any vocabulary beyond that word? <laughs> I know you do. So, Well, I thought this went very well. You know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed researching my story. The problem with Google is you make a search, then trying to make it do something that continues on yeah. is almost impossible. Yeah. But if you use AI, you can say, hey, take what you already know and then add to it. And that made it really cool. My Chrome browser defaults to the, the AI search engine mm -hmm. when I open Chrome, but I find that I get better results just from using my newspapers.com subscription because then I can find a news article from 1948 or whatever, and then I can search in Google and find more information. But it's hard to find those little stories that didn't well, make the huge headlines for six months. And when you're looking for survivors, that's a big deal. It's harder to find survivor stories. Oh, I so. bet. Yeah, I, I was just looking for something that, you know, would pique my interest. Let me try chat with GPT. And when I started doing it, I was like, it's going in a direction I don't like. So let me see if I can push it back in the right yeah. direction. And once it came up with the story, I used every other source, crazy stuff for references. Well, it is really interesting that you use AI to find the story. And then the story was also using these revolutionary techniques to investigate and try to profile and try to find the person and serial numbers off the clocks and, you know, all, all these things that really weren't common to do at that time. It was a nice theme that went through your whole presentation. You did a really good job. I'm really proud of you. And I'm very grateful that you came on today. So I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. I'm glad. So to our listeners today, this has been Buckeye Don. Hopefully he will be a recurring guest at the True Crime B&B. And to those of you who are new here, please go follow me on Instagram. You can follow me on Facebook, although I don't do much there. Also on X or Twitter or whatever that crap it is now. <laughs> I don't really go there very much. If you're enjoying the podcast, I would sure appreciate it if you could go give me a rating and a review somewhere. Please go do that. Help me out. <laughs> so I think that's the end of today. Thank you for listening to episode 79. And thank you for being here today, Buckeye Dawn. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. To everybody out there, have a good day. And I'll see you back in a couple more weeks. Take care, everybody. Bye. <laughs> Why don't you get... There's a cat. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here, puss. Here's puss. Hello. His fanship. His fanship. Yeah. He became obsessed with a sense of injustice. Wait, 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 wait. Can you re-say that without the giggle? That caused burns to his know. face and hands. I don't, I don't know what the hell that's about. Oh. Sorry. It's not you. My computer's saying, restart oh, required. Your PC needs to be restarted to finish setting up this device.
What the hell does this mean? Good question. I don't want to restart right now, Microsoft. Fuck off. Please leave her alone. You're being much more polite about it than I am. I am not restarting my damn computer. I hate this. Only when I'm trying to record an episode. Are you working again? Yeah, one second. I'm just sending an email to Joe so he knows what's going on there. All right. He talked to a different guy named Brussel. He was a criminologist and a psychologist. So the psychologist? Psychiatrist is So the psychiatrist, says. he reached out to another person who was what? Brussel Wait a minute. Thought, Wait, what? Slashing and stuffing. And you don't have to tell what the story's going to be. You yes. And, oh, I didn't uh, catch that. Okay. Oh, I hadn't said that yet, I guess. Sorry. All of a sudden, they're like, well, you know, well, who knows who that is or whatever that's all about. Is this the 50s? You know, 45 years or no, maybe 37 years. I think our math was confused. Yeah, we're all. messing up our math today. <laughs> I don't know what to do. We're a bunch is. of dummies. We don't know how to add. I'm not uh, following what you're saying. Oh, I'm sorry. Apparently, there are a lot of crazy people there. I don't know. Do I need to slap your face? I'm afraid you're going to start snoring on me over there. Clearly, that was a mistake using salvaged building materials in line with Joy's emphasis on protecting the people who... Wait, <laughs> I skipped a line. Not protecting the people who attended. If you're going to cough, would you mute so you don't overlap with my... I don't know where the mute is on this. Yeah, I had to mute myself to cough I... a couple times. Just don't leave. <laughs> no, I'm not going anywhere. I just... One of the knife blows. Knife blow? Knife stabs? Knife wounds? Knife. Vaughn's... This is hard to say. Vaughn's Bond. You say that. Say it fast. Vaughn's Bond. Vaughn's Bond. Vaughn's Bond. Bond. Okay, smartass. <laughs> Vaughn's Bond. Vaughn's Bond. Acceptance. Sorry, I'm going to take a little sip. A little vodka. Then I wouldn't be able to speak. That was better. I, I couldn't tell if you were talking or coughing. Sure. 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 <laughs> there you go. That I get better results just from using my newspapers.com pres prescription. <laughs> My newspapers.com prescription. I have to take two a day. Help a bitch out. You have to say goodbye now, Don. Don't be like Pat last goodbye. week. Are you doing the loser sign at me? That's so mean. Uh, the shape of an L on your forehead. Alco liver flavor. Yeah, liver yeah. flavor. Liver fl yeah. <laughs> oh my God. What the hell is wrong I don't really like thing? liver that much because I like helping out.